I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. School of Humans. Sanctum Unmasked is about a sex club and describes various sex acts. Please use discretion where and when you listen. So when we left you last episode, two women from Craigslist were fucking in a birdcage, and the first Sanctum party was a huge success. And the club's founder, Damon Lawner, realized that his purpose in life was to curate sexually transcendent experiences for the 1%. But how could you forget? As word got around that Sanctum was a hit, the press ate it up. The LA Times wrote a steamy article about the club, along with the popular website Urban Daddy. Behold the quivering majesty of Sanctum, an invite-only Beverly Hills night spot. To begin, we can't tell you where it is. Sorry, that would blow the whole secrecy thing. What we can tell you is how to get admitted and what you'll see. That's from the Urban Daddy piece from February 2013, right after the launch. But wait, it keeps going. Go to their Facebook page, send Sanctum a note. If they like what they see in terms of your attractiveness, number of mutual friends, and artfully chosen cover photo, congratulations, you're invited. We really can't say much else, but maybe you'll see a girl wearing latex in a bathtub pouring milk all over herself. Or maybe you'll see naked girls rubbing themselves with oil. And hey, maybe some guys doing the same. It's a real something for everyone kind of place. The press loved this story. They loved it. They loved that Hollywood was involved. They loved that it was moneyed and, you know, powerful people. They loved that it was kind of this erotic vibe. And this played on on myth. It played on mythology. It played on spirituality and religion. It played on cult. It played on all of these things that people are intrigued by and interested in. It just felt like, especially in 2013, no one was pushing this envelope. Welcome to Sanctum Unmasked. I'm your host, Carly Shortino. Off the back of the flurry of publicity, 
Damon starts hosting parties monthly at various nightclubs around LA. Every event sells out. And while Sanctum began as more of a sexy party with live erotic performances, it very quickly evolves into just a full-blown sex party, which actually came as a surprise to Damon. It got very sexual. I mean, there was sex at the tables, in bathrooms, and I was like, whoa, what the, you know, what's going on? Like, I didn't plan on doing that necessarily, throwing a sex party. The problem, as you might imagine, is that nightclub owners don't love a bunch of people railing all over the place because it's illegal and grounds to lose their liquor license. So Damon spent the first months of Sanctum's existence just getting kicked out of clubs, and it became a bit frustrating. He knew he needed to find a way to throw a party where his desperately horny guests could just fuck in public in peace, goddammit. He needed to find a private home where he could set up a bar, hire his own staff, and just let everybody perv out to their heart's desires. But finding homeowners to rent him their LA mansions for raucous sex parties proved to be annoyingly difficult. And the people who were down tended to be a really specific type creepy rich guys in their 50s who liked the idea of a bunch of hot young women fucking in their infinity pool. Dealing with the owners of these houses was always very stressful. The biggest thing was the homeowners feeling entitled to grope girls, to get drunk and be assholes, and it was their home. Plus, I've got a staff of like 25 people, maybe 30 people. These were like weddings, you know, flowers and chocolates and all the liquor and the champagne, all the glassware, all that. I mean, these were major productions every single month. Damon was not living it up at those early parties. Sometimes the homeowners would get cold feet and cancel last minute, leaving him struggling to find an orgy mansion at the 11th hour. Not easy. Plus, at this point, Damon and Melissa, his wife and the mother of his two kids, were making just enough money to cover their overhead. The whole thing was chaotic. Those parties, I was like running around for hours nonstop. I was making sure everyone was happy. I was making sure that there wasn't a drunk girl in some back room, you know, getting assaulted. I mean, this was a fucking sex party where people were wild and intoxicated. And if anything happened, I would lose everything. It was the Wild West for me. I didn't have like insurance. I didn't have NDA agreements in the beginning. It was just like, I mean, I was very exposed. You know, the parties were started at 10 o'clock. At like 9.55, I'd be getting out of whatever I was working in and putting on my tuxedo and sort of like putting on my mask, so to speak. But like, you know, my mask that I put on was, okay, I've got to be this guy. I've got to be the guy that like leads these people into like sexual rebellion and freedom. The Pied Piper of debauchery, one might call him, if bad jokes are your thing. In that first year of the club, Damon and Melissa were building Sanctum's brand and really just figuring out what the party was in real time. They started putting on bigger and more intricate live shows, which meant hiring erotic performers, makeup artists, costumers, etc. Damon also brought on a creative director, Alina Ratuska, to help with the choreography of it all. We reached out to Alina multiple times, by the way, but she didn't want to talk to us. There was also an increasing fetish presence at Sanctum. Remember, this was 2013, aka a year after every basic bitch on the planet went SM hysterical over 50 Shades of Grey. So Damon hired a Dom to work the party to educate the guests about BDSM. 
Here's Melissa remembering it. We had like a professional dom. Like he was this, like that's what he did for a living. And you as a couple, you guys could go over to him and and he could talk to you about like different tools that are like tantalizing on the skin or something that's going to be a little more firm or a little, you know, like what do you like? And then he would walk you through what that was and you guys could experiment that together. The overall goal was to create an environment that felt sophisticated, while also being a place you'd feel inclined to bend a stranger over an end table. It's a delicate balance. Because Damon's very attentive to detail, he also created more unexpected roles for his performers to add to the ambiance and fantasy of it all. It didn't feel like a sex party. It felt like an event that people had sex at. That's Claudia, one of Sanctum's early hires. She's a big presence, a platinum blonde with a bright smile, and she's not afraid to be blunt, which is a quality that I personally love. She ended up working at the club for three years, and the story of how she got her start is pretty interesting. When I started Sanctum, um, I I was young. I was 20, 22, 23. So I feel like I got into that right where your brain really starts developing, like, into thinking about sex and, like, thinking about what do I like, what do I not like, what's my sexuality, you know, am I straight, am I bisexual? Like, I was very naive living in L.A., um, so that was, like, a very shaping (laughs) period, I think. When Claudia heard about Sanctum, she was working at the Playboy Mansion, getting paid to swim in the infamous grotto and look hot, basically. She got word that a new exclusive club was looking for girls who were fun and open-minded, but it was all very hush-hush. She was intrigued and was given an address to meet for an interview. But when she showed up, she didn't even know what she was applying for. So I went and I met Damon at this, like, small little club on, I think it was, like, on Melrose. And I go in there, and it was just him. The whole place is pitch black, literally pitch black. I'm like, okay, I'm definitely in the wrong place. And I go in there, and he's sitting there just, like, literally just him. No papers, no notepad, nothing. Like, I'm like, okay, like, what is this? And I go in, and he introduced himself, and he's like— are you comfortable being naked? Like, one of his first couple questions. And I was like, yeah, for sure. And he's like, okay, get naked. Like, literally like that. And I was like, there's literally nobody in here. (laughs) Like, this is, okay, whatever. So I literally, I stripped down, like, to my underwear. And he's like, okay, you're hired. And I'm like, hired for what? (laughs) I don't even know, like, what am I hired for? The job, it turns out, was to be an atmosphere girl, I'll just let her explain it. In my job, literally 99% of the time was just walking around and just existing. As, like, the party started progressing for me, like, he would then, like, say, okay, get dressed up. We're going to drape you in, like, diamonds and rhinestones. And your job's just going to be, you're going to walk around with, like, a feather and, like, just dust people. Don't, Don't talk to anyone. You're just there to, like, look beautiful. Or if Damon was like, I want you naked today, then, you know, I would just plop down on a chaise lounge somewhere naked and say hello to the world. (laughs) Claudia speaks of her time at Sanctum so fondly that the experience was extremely fun and eye-opening. And she clearly has the perfect temperament for the job. 
I mean, she's the sort of person who genuinely finds it amusing to show up for an interview and be asked to strip naked by a strange man sitting in a dark basement like a vampire. However, not everyone found Damon's hiring practices so charming. For instance, another early hire was Ambrose. Damon was looking for someone to play the, quote, bunny role at the club, which basically meant dressing up in skimpy lingerie, donning a bunny mask with cute little bunny ears, and following Damon around the party as his little pet. Ambrose is shy with a sweet, nervous laugh. He's a trans man, but during his years at Sanctum was still presenting as femme. Ambrose, which, by the way, is a stage name, not his real name, heard about Sanctum from a friend who was already performing at the party and thought he'd be a great fit. Here's Ambrose. Well, so initially she was like, you need to meet up with this guy, Damon, and just, like, set up an interview, and he'll ask you some questions and whatnot. And she did mention that they were looking for model-esque type femme people or women or whatever. And since I was, like, pre-transitioning at that point, you know, I kind of fit that mold. And at the time, I had really long brown hair into my ass. Ambrose was 20 at the time. For his interview, Damon set up a meeting at a hotel restaurant in Beverly Hills. And then he asked me this very interesting question, which at the time, you know, I was very young, innocent, naive. Like, he asked me if he could see my body without clothes on to see if I was fit for, like, the role that he was wanting. And I was like, well, how would that happen? He's like... There's bathrooms upstairs above where we are, and no one ever really goes in them. So we went upstairs to this bathroom area, and sure enough, no one was in there. Um, And we went to, like, the handicapped stall. He stood on one side, and I tried to stand as far away from him as I possibly could. I I got down to, like, being naked. He asked me to, like, do a little spin around. And he was like, all right, brilliant, perfect. We'd love to have you. And I was like, all right, cool. (laughs) Sounds good. At the time, Ambrose found this kind of uncomfortable. But he was young and just starting out in the industry and thought, well, I guess this is just how this stuff works. And to be real, in some corners of the sex industry, this can, unfortunately, be how this stuff works. But Ambrose was curious about the job and decided to take it despite this. He started out working the floor in various atmosphere roles. They asked you to work the crowd, essentially. But it was always, like, implied to do it in a very flirtatious, like, sexual kind of way. And, like, I was really good at it. Like, there was a lot of people that I knew and recognized and recognized me. And, like, I feel like would look forward to seeing me and vice versa at the parties. To give you a picture of how this all operated... Each Sanctum event had a cast of about 10 to 12 performers. Most of them were atmosphere models. Basically, people who were paid to roam around in costumes acting as different characters. Like, maybe you were the bunny that night. Or sometimes they'd have a girl dressed up as a lamp. Lol. Damon calls this interactive performance art. These performers would be paid between $350 and $550 a night. But then there'd be a few cast members who would have sex in front of the guests as part of the live sex show. And these were the highest paid performers at Sanctum. You can think of the sex shows almost like porno ballet. Dramatic strings, impressively flexible women, smoke machines, 
and lots of lube, obviously. For example, they sometimes did ritualistic-type performances, where the atmosphere girls would hold candles and lead out the virgin or the princess or whatever character it was on the night, who would then be fucked to death by a guy with an eight-pack. You get the idea. After working for a while as an atmosphere model, Ambrose wanted a pay jump and started working as a live sex performer. I love how he recalls how the cast members would prepare for going on stage. So we're, like, getting ready for the performance. Then we go back in the green room. If someone is getting something inserted into them, like, penetration-wise, they, like, kind of, like, fluff themselves or someone helps them out back there. I'd always have my little Hitachi be like, okay, I'm good. Hitachi meaning his faithful vibrator, of course, a tried and true classic. Mike Sager, who we met last episode, is the journalist from Esquire who followed Damon around for a few months back in 2016. He gave us his take on the live sex show. At a certain time of the evening, they would have the show. And it was basically um, choreographed fucking. But yet, also artsy and lit and costumed. It's almost like you get the impression you're watching, like, The Follies or or something, but it was a sex act. And it was very much a, a vibe like cabaret. You know, that kind of, like, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the sex show. So, like, Sondheim meets Eyes Wide Shut. Honestly, I'm down. I remember one had a piggy mask being led by a chain on another who was wearing like a eye cage and another one with like a leather police hat with a flog. And they would go among the visitors instead of handing out canapes, they would like say, you know, it said stroke me or hit me or whatever. So they could stroke her, you know, fondle her or they could like hit her with a whip, whatever their predilection was. As time went on, characters began to emerge within the world of the club. One of Damon's favorite regulars was this male porn star who, according to Damon, had one of the biggest dicks in the industry. Glamorous. And this guy had a very special party trick. He would just, like, lay on one of the master beds in the bedroom, and there would be a line, I'm not fucking with you, a line of women, and he would just put on a condom and he stayed hard because he's a fucking porn star whatever they inject into their dicks or whatever they're on I don't know but you know four hours five hours of, of a hard on which seems like it would be painful but he would lay on the bed like a fucking amusement park ride and women would walk in and there would be a line and they would get on him they would ride him they would come and they would get off and the next woman would step on and it was like this guy treated me like I was his hero and I was like Bro, what the fuck? Like, you're like this god, you know? Like, you're welcome any time. And he would come to almost every party. So this is the kind of stuff you'd see at Sanctum. And for a lot of the guests, this was all pretty shocking. The club attracted a specific crowd, often the sort of people who never imagined they'd end up at a sex party. But because it had this upscale reputation— and was being covered in mainstream publications, they thought, fuck it, maybe I am one of those depraved sex party people, just like the rich version. Sanctum felt approachable, almost safe. Basically, there were a lot of orgy virgins. One notable orgy virgin was David Winkler, a Hollywood movie producer. 
He's in his 50s and has this really warm, non-judgmental energy. When he heard about Sanctum, he was recently divorced and looking to explore his sexuality. He'd never been to anything resembling a sex party and described his sex life then as pretty vanilla. After he went through Sanctum's application process, he spent months feeling way too nervous to actually go. But eventually, he started dating a woman who was intrigued and encouraged him to make the leap. Here's David. The girl I was dating and I decided, okay, well, I needed a new tuxedo if I'm going to go to my first sex party. So we, like, went and spent a whole weekend beforehand shopping. I bought, like, this platinum $400 mask. And we ended up at a famous lingerie store. Welcome. And we found this beautiful outfit for her. And the saleswoman says, let me ask you something. Is this for a specific event? We kind of looked at each other, and we didn't know what to admit. We said, yeah, we're going to a party tonight. Oh, you're going to Sanctum. She said, oh, you're going to Sanctum. She said, yeah, I do really well on the fourth Saturday of every month. I sell whips. I sell chains. I sell blindfolds. So much lingerie. Like, she made her entire commission on the fourth Saturday of every month. Love that for her. For David, who considered himself pretty conservative— even just having this conversation with a stranger was crazy. Well, what was incredible is, is just that what Sanctum showed me is that there's this whole world of people who know about things and just don't talk about them. Everybody's afraid to talk about sex. Everybody's afraid to talk about the kinky things they do. But the minute you open up and you start talking about it, people feel comfortable and they start sharing. When David finally did make it to Sanctum, let's just say first impressions were good. You know, the first time you go to a Sanctum, it's like uh, walking into a private Victoria's Secret catalog runway party. You know, you're met at the door by the most beautiful women in these huge feathered headdresses and, you know, gold capes and nothing else and high heels. And walking around was just unbelievable. But the appeal extended beyond just the opportunity to leer at models dressed as horny, exotic birds. Personally, I think the goal of any sexual space is to create an environment where people can explore their sexuality without judgment or shame. And unfortunately, there aren't enough places like that in the world. But as many guests and performers recall it, David included, Sanctum was starting to build a community that resembled something of this sort. That's the one thing that I got from it, was just like you walk into a club where people are having sex and there's no shame. But I think for the most people, even open-minded people, you know, going to a party where there's, you know, dozens of people naked and having sex in front of you and everybody thinking, oh, that's cool, and talking about it, um, made me feel like I was not the only pervert in town. Honestly, kind of wholesome. When we come back after a break, Damon tries to bring his work into bed with him. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. 
my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with the Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So by this point, Damon and Melissa have been running Sanctum for over two years. And the bigger the club gets, the more it starts to spill over into their personal lives. Sanctum is becoming something that they, or at least Melissa, often feels like she needs to hide. Like, we're living in Beverly Hills. We're friends with all of those parents and families and, you know, going to birthday parties and, like, living that kind of domesticated lifestyle. All the while, on the down low, my husband runs this naughty-ass sex club in the hills, like double life. Uh, No one knew. So as soon as this shit started to get successful, I was like, um, fuck. Basically, they were the orgy masters in a sea of cardiologists and entertainment lawyers, and it was getting kind of awkward. At this point, Melissa was still heavily involved in managing the club with Damon, and her tasks were shall we say, wide-ranging. In the beginning stages, I was working in the club. I would do the door. I would cast the girls. I'd run out to the valley and buy a bunch of dildos and, like, nipple shit and floggers. Like, I was doing the deal and, like, helping him with with this fucking sex club. And I was, like, big supporter once again. After years of building the club, she's sick of getting awkward stares from other mothers on the playground, and she's sick of foraging for nipple shit in the valley. One night, she hits her breaking point. There's this one party that we had in Bel Air. It was, like, at a huge mega mansion that was, like, empty because it was, like, being sold or something. And I was doing the door with, like, two other people and managing bottle service for all of these high rollers that were coming in. And... Damon was nowhere to be found. They literally couldn't find him anywhere for hours. And I felt like I was 
holding it all and, you know, trying to put out fires left and right. And finally I find him and he's like upstairs in some room with all these different people and like two porn stars. They weren't doing anything sexual, but like they were all just like hanging out up there, partaking and and drinking. And like, he's like upstairs, just like living his best life. You know, so that was the last party I attended, worked at, went to any of it. From then on, she tells Damon, she's going to stay home with the kids on the nights of the parties. Also, it's relevant to note here, despite them hosting these big events at mega mansions, Damon and Melissa are still struggling financially because they're putting almost all the money they earn back into the parties. So that adds this whole other stress on top of the whole secret sex cult leader thing. Once the house party started, my budgets were in the area of like 25000 to 35000 per party. That was about what I was making, and I would basically just spend it all on the party. I would probably walk away with enough money to like pay my rent, buy groceries. So if I took out 5000 a month in profit, I was okay. I was fine. Um, and so any ticket sales, any membership sales, anything we had— went into the party. And it was really not ever enough to do what I wanted to do. Damon knows he has to figure out a more stable, long-term plan for the club. Finding a different rental house for the party every month was expensive and exhausting. Like literally lugging a whole sound system and a giant cage for your sex slaves and a thousand boxes of wet wipes into a different house every month? Like, no, he was over it. So he and Melissa come up with a plan to rent a house where they could both live and host the parties. Plus, this had the added benefit of getting their family out of their cramped apartment. So they start house hunting, and they get insanely lucky. I found this incredible 1960s Tudor mansion in Homeby Hills that was going to be torn down. They were going to put up a super mansion on it. And the guy told me, he's like, we're going to tear this house down. So I had 12 months. Damon was in love with this place. It was his Barbie dream house, the orgy version. You know, seven bedrooms, uh, eight, nine bathrooms on an acre, grand staircase, you know, just a, a beautiful 1960s, totally original, but very opulent. Mike Sager remembers the mansion a bit differently. No, it was not genuinely opulent or genuinely impressive, but the people were genuinely into it and having a good time. Obsessed. It's like if you're there in the daytime, it's like this is moldy and this cabinet is shitty and like it had this gross carpet. But at nighttime with the uplighting and the candles and I mean, they did a wonderful job setting stuff up. The house, which would come to be known as the Sanctum Mansion, would be theirs for just over a year in what would be the height of the club's success. And opulent or not, it was perfect for what they wanted to do. AKA throw a giant party where people get drunk and break things and come all over the place. Melissa couldn't wait to get out of their apartment. She went into interior design mode, you know, making mood boards, fantasizing about wallpaper, all that fun stuff. However, as she would come to find out, Damon wasn't exactly on the same page. I was excited because I, as like the mom and the wife, And the domesticated person that I was, was like, oh my God, finally we get out of this apartment and we get into a house. That was my, oh, I'm going to decorate it. I'm going to buy a couch. I'm going to do this. It's going to be great. So that was where my brain was. But pretty much the whole time that was happening, I think in his head, he's like, 
now y'all aren't moving in here. Okay, let's zoom out for a sec. After dedicating nearly three years to the club, things are starting to shift for Damon. The day-to-day struggles have given way to a larger, more internal struggle. Up until now, Damon was behind the scenes, the charming host facilitating other people's indulgence. But he never participated himself. He and Melissa had been monogamous for two decades. But now he's starting to become interested in getting involved, like sexually. He's being tempted by the world that he created, and he wants to experiment. Like, literally, he's constantly surrounded by hot women in S&M bunny costumes, and he's a man with a dick. There was, like, this kind of BDSM thing creeping in where, you know, I was kind of learning a bit about shibari, how to tie someone up, like, how to spank someone, what flogging was, you know, like, all this stuff. Because the performers were doing it. You know, we were choreographing everything, and I was around it, and someone would hand me a paddle and say, like, this is how you do it. And I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. But I remember asking Melissa, like, are you okay with me experimenting with this? Like, it's not sexual. There's no kissing. There's no fucking. There's nothing like that. I'm tying someone up or I'm flogging someone or I'm spanking someone with my bare hand. You know, that is erotic in nature. And I asked her, like, how do you feel about that? And it was an interesting discussion, you know, and she said she, she, she decided to, like, allow that. He would come to me and be like, Mel, what do you think if I just flogged this one girl, you know, at the party? I think it's good. It's a good show. Like, this is my brand. And, you know, let me just, like, spank and flog this girl. I'm like, okay, I think it's fine. I didn't, I didn't have an issue with it. So they begin to experiment with pushing the boundaries of their relationship. For Damon, this is all really exciting. He's been spanking up a storm at the club and loving it. And he's hoping this can spice up his sex life with Melissa. So he tries bringing some of his new skills into the bedroom. I kind of wanted to kind of, you know, push some of that in bed a little bit. And and, and I don't know, I I put my hand on her neck or something. And she just like slapped it away and was like, what are you doing? And I was like, you know, I don't know. I'm like experimenting. And she's like, no, I'm not into this. Not at all. Like, I don't, I don't like this. I don't want it. And I was like, okay. So our sexuality remained what it was. For a while, anyway. But suppressing his desires only made things worse. And it wasn't long before his desires extended beyond BDSM light. He kept pushing the boundary, pushing the boundary, and wanting more and more and more until he was finally like, I think we should fuck other people. I'm like, no, dude. Literally, we're already barely hanging on. Financially strapped. Two kids tiny little apartment, this new club thing idea that he's conceptualizing. It was already, like, way too much, and I was like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Okay, he gets it. Everything Melissa is saying makes logical sense. And yet, he just can't get the idea out of his head. The conversation about opening up their relationship keeps coming up. And Melissa feels like she's stuck in a loop, saying no over and over again, like she's the uptight bouncer of their relationship. He wanted to open up our marriage all the time. He would, like, at the dinner table. So, what do you think about opening up our marriage and being with other people? And I think, you know, it's a good idea. And he would try to pitch me this. Until finally, she changes her strategy. And this one night at dinner, I remember the girls left the table. They went to their room. And I tried to call his bluff. I was like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I know exactly who I want to have sex with. 
And, you know, I was like seeing what he would do. And he's like started to get uncomfortable. Damon's squirming, which, let's be real, is kind of predictable. But this is ultimately the conversation he's been wanting to have. So he goes with it. And so we actually did this. We actually opened up our marriage. We agreed that this one night he would go do whatever he wanted to go do. And I had that same freedom. And we did that. And we had those intimacies with other people. After the break, can you have your cake and fuck it too? I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So after Damon's persistence about opening up their relationship, he gets his wish. For one night only, they would each bang other people, and then they'd come back together to discuss how it felt. And they each already had someone in mind. We did open it up, and she was okay with it. You know, I, I, I told her what I was going to do. Um, I, I left for the evening, and, and <laughs> of course, my first experience, you know, I had a threesome, you know, like I'm like really adventuring, you know. Wow, I get my hall pass, so I'm going to go for it. Fun. And then it was Melissa's night. And how did that turn out for everybody? When it was her turn... She made love with, with her, like, her personal trainer, and it fucking destroyed me. I couldn't deal with it. Wow, I've just got to interject here. Fucking your personal trainer. Both extremely cliche and extremely hot. But anyway, Damon spiraling. 
I don't know what it is. It feels like animalistic. It feels like it's an ancient feeling, like a feeling of I'm a lion on on the on the wherever the fuck they are, you know. And I'm just like, ah, no, am I? You know, like no, you know, this is fucking. I'm fucking this. You go fuck something else. He's kind of regretting this whole thing. And I get it. I mean, we've all had that feeling of wanting to have personal sexual freedom while our partner stays locked in a cage, right? That can't just be me. But for Melissa, it was a little different. You know when, like, glass breaks and it's just this little crack? And then it just starts to slowly, slowly, the crack gets bigger and bigger and bigger until the glass breaks, and that's kind of how I I pictured that. We were still together, and we were still living this life together, but it was punctured. And it just kind of was downhill from there. So in the aftermath of all of this, they're trying to find a path forward. They'd been together for 20 years. They'd always figured it out. Why would this time be any different? Meanwhile, Sanctum's expanding, and they're doing their first party in New York. So Melissa goes along with Damon to make the trip a vacation for the two of them. One, she says, they desperately need. So we go to New York. It's like our first time that we're actually like on a vacation away from L.A. My mom's got the girls. It was fabulous for me. But little did I know that he was actually like on Instagram and on all these different sites, like corresponding with girls. He invited this one girl He flew her in from Texas to come to New York, put her up in a hotel. He's like, Mel, I'm going to go to a meeting. Why don't you go shopping? And so I'd go into Soho and go shopping, but he was really going to see her. After the New York party, they come back home to L.A., and Melissa is still in the dark about all of this. And then, like a scene out of some cheesy Lifetime erotic thriller, Melissa's at home, and she starts hearing all of these texts dinging. And she doesn't know where they're coming from. So she starts searching the house, and she realizes that it's coming from her daughter's iPad. And, spoiler alert, she finds Damon's texts with the girl from Texas. And I start to read it, and then I start to go back into the history, and it goes back far. And I start shaking. It was the first time I felt deceived, in a way, you know? We'd always talked about everything, and I just didn't feel like he would deceive me like that. And just to see the love that he was pouring out in the words and the little emojis and the hearts and the roses and all those things that he was throwing out at her hurt. It just, it just hurt. I remember, like, running out the door, crying, running around my block. He was, like, running after me, and it was, it was, it was Hugely devastating, heartbroken, just to see all of that stuff, even though I knew he was running the Sanctum. I knew he was a part of the sex club. I knew what was going on at the clubs. But in my delusioned mind, I just thought that that was that and he was mine. You know, it's it's interesting because that was a very devastating experience for her. And what's so strange is that um, this girl is so meaningless to me. I think I met her in New York, and she was going to come to a sanctum party. She probably applied. You said you flew her out from Texas? 
oh, maybe I did fly her out. Maybe I did. Whatever Melissa said is prob- is true. I mean, I don't, I don't remember the details. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes it even worse. Yeah, I probably flew her out from Texas. You know, I, I, would, I would meet up with her and, like, hang out with her and then go back to Melissa. It was completely fucked up, yeah. And then I think Melissa found out. I don't remember how. I don't remember if she saw us talking. You know, there or- was a sanctum party, then you went back to L.A., and then she found texts between you guys because they were, like, going to your kid's iPad. You're you're reminding me that I went into like full blown sex addict mode for a while, for a lo- for 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 years. Just that was me. Sanctum was almost like my excuse, but I was really just like a full blown sex addict. It was the perfect job for me because I was so fucking into it finding all these girls and contacting all these girls and like fucking all these girls. I was a liar. I was hiding things. I probably had tons of videos and pictures and messages. Yeah, I was um I was a really fucked up, fucked up individual. And then that glass that Melissa mentioned, it finally shattered. After that, a lot of other stories came out that he became honest and truthful with that went back to our days in Hancock Park when I was, you know, having the babies. At that point, the infidelity and what he had done was just like, it was part of a huge explosion. I was just going to go off because I just couldn't handle the lifestyle anymore. And I just felt alone in the house with the kids and like, it was just imploding and crumbling from underneath us. And the infidelity was the nail on the coffin. That was it. In the midst of all of this horror, they signed the lease on the Sanctum Mansion. But the plan of turning the house into a place of both domestic bliss and sexual liberation doesn't pan out. Instead, Damon moves into the Sanctum Mansion alone. Melissa stays in the apartment with the kids. And thus, Damon begins his era of sexual freedom or reckless sexual abandon, depending on how you look at it. Next time on Sanctum Unmasked. Okay, well, we saw this person getting whipped. Is that something you're into? And what if you're like, hell yeah. He was discovering himself as a hedonist. And he actually said that to me. I was like in a bedroom, high on molly and cocaine. You know, and this porn star says, I want to suck your cock like it's never been sucked in your life. Therein lies the reason this story is so fascinating, because in betwixt and in between, there's the devil and the angel. Sanctum Unmasked is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts, hosted and written by me, Carly Shortino. Edelise Perez is our lead producer and story editor. Amelia Brock is our senior producer. Sound design, scoring, mixing by George Hicks. Original music composed by Jesse Neiswanger. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Logo illustration by Linda McNeil. Graham Gibson and Doug Baim are our recording engineers. Recorded at iHeart Studios in Los Angeles, California. Executive producers are Nick Stumpf, Jason English, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and me, Carly Shortino. If you're enjoying the show, help us get the word out by leaving a rating in your favorite podcast app. You can keep up with Damon on Instagram. He's at Father Damon. See you next week. School of Humans. 
I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, this is Paris Hilton. Trapped in Treatment is back, and this season we're taking on WASP, the worldwide association of specialty programs and schools. They held us in dog cages. They starved us. They beat us was trying to brand us. We were going to become the McDonald's in treatment. Join my host as they unravel the story of the largest and most shocking organization in the history of the troubled teen industry. Listen to season two of Trapped in Treatment on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.